0: So, all that to say, I'm preaching this morning, and uh, my introduction is about being a pessimist. It's about being a pessimist. I don't know how many of you are good pessimists. Um, by that, I don't, it's a kind of a worldly word, but I, uh, uh, but I mean to, just to say focusing on the negative of things. That, it, that the negative of things tends to jump out at you and tends to be right in front of your face all the time. And so I'm thinking about this introduction on being a pessimist, and I'm looking for some good story on pessimism. And finally, I realize I'm sitting there, sitting there doing my sermon, and I finally realize it's me. I am my own introduction. I am my own introduction. For those of you that know me, this is me. This is me. I can easily, very, very easily, focus on all the negative things. Um, and, and then, not only that, so around the holiday times, uh, Scrooge, right, comes to mind. Uh, um, my family is this way. Um, my family, each and every one of us, I guarantee you, could, can quote Murphy's Law very quickly, right? Some of you don't even know what that is. It's a law that says if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong, all right? It actually, I was researching the start of it. It's from the aerospace industry. Who would have thought? Either way, long story, not, not applicable to the sermon at all. But Murphy's Law, one of, my, one of our favorite characters as a family is Eeyore. Do you guys know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? My whole family, like, we gravitate towards him. We're like, yeah, I get his perspective. I get him. I get him. That's just how we are. Um, Oscar the Grouch. Oscar the Grouch, for those Sesame Street fans. Um, he just got something to complain about all the time. And so I'm looking for an illustration on, on um, pessimism, and I find out that it's me. And then my sermon title is Overcoming Joy. It's overcoming Joy. Which, if you're a pessimist today, you think that's a job description. Right? You think that's your job in people's lives. If someone's joyful, I can point out the negatives. If you think you got reason to be happy today, I'll give you three reasons why it's not going to last. Right? If you think that life's going great, I'll give you five things that could come and ruin it real quick. Um, overcoming joy. You guys can open to Psalm 30. That's where we're going to be this morning is Psalm 30. Overcoming joy is not intended as a job description this morning. Um, it's intended as a gift from God. It's intended as a gift from God. That God gives overcoming joy. God gives a joy that can overcome. God gives to us. That it's in his very nature to be giving. It's in his very nature to give to his people. It's in his very nature to be active, to be a part of what's going on in our lives and to help us. And so what we want to see this morning is that the Lord, we want to see how the Lord overcomes our circumstances, that we might praise him. We want to see how the Lord overcomes our circumstances that we might praise Him. And we're going to see that from the life of David in Psalm 30. We're going to see how the Lord overcomes our circumstances in order that we would praise Him. Uh, the Psalms... Um, well, let me read it first, and then we'll go in. Psalm 30. I'm reading from the NIV. It says this, Psalm 30, starting in the superscript. A psalm, a song, for the dedication of the temple of David. I will exalt you, O Lord, O Lord, For you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his praise, his holy name for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What gain is there in my destruction, in my going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. You bow your heads with me. we will ask God's blessing on his word. God, we look to you this day. Lord, this sermon is for me that I struggle to be joyful. I struggle to exalt you and to praise you and to remember that you are active and overcome the circumstances of our lives. God, I pray that as a people here today that we would hear from your word, that we would be enthralled by who you are. We would learn, God, about who our God is. Um, God, teach us from your word. Help us to understand this morning. And with your spirit, apply these things to our lives. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Psalms. We're in the book of Psalms. And what I want to tell you first about the book of Psalms is that it's an amazing book and the church has always run to it because it's encouraging, because it's life. And what it is, is the book of Psalms is all of humanity, our life, our, our feeble existence, the finiteness of us, our, our emotions, our, our struggles, all of this. And it's a collision between that and between an infinite sovereign Loving God. And the reason why we've come to the Psalms and we love them is that we need it. We need it. Because we see the mess of our lives sometimes. We see the struggles. And we need to see how God impacts that. We need an explosion of what it means to view God as big and to see Him for who He is. There's times where we go to the Psalms and it's rejoicing with all sorts of joy, and we're right there with it. We're like, yes, this is this is this is proclaiming my heart on the page to God. And there's other times where the psalmist is struggling and, and thinking and, and weeping, and we can relate with that as well. So in the Psalms, we see the collision of these two things, and it's an encouragement to us. And so this is the sermon is about who God is. Who God is. That God is a God who overcomes our circumstances. I want you to look at the superscript. Psalm 30, and then there's little tiny words in your Bible. Little tiny words in your Bible above the psalm. So in the New Testament, uh, the translators add titles. I don't know if like above Romans chapter 8, it'll say no condemnation for God's people. That's added. That's not in the text. These little tiny words, though, are in the text. It's not added. This is in the Hebrew manuscript. Um, And so we have to deal with it, meaning, okay, so we look at Psalm thirty and we go, okay, it's a psalm which means it's this thing that collides with humanity is God's people expressing that it's a song. So David intends it to be sung. It says it's for the dedication of the temple. And then it says of David, David that's an authorship mark of David, David wrote it. Now the problem with the dedication of the temple thing is in, in the Hebrew, it literally says for the dedication of a house, for the dedication of the house. And we go, okay, whose house? So there's all this debate: David's house, God's house. Um, Maybe the Maccabees added this in later because in the history they rededicated the temple. There's all this debate, and I want to tell you most of the time where the term "the house" is used in the Old Testament, um, it's used of the temple in such a circumstance as this. And so I'm going to take it as that. It could be debate, but could be David's house. It could be whatever. Uh, someone else's house, but I think it's the temple. I think it's the temple. I think David is writing for the temple. And I want to give you a short history just for context of David's life, okay? So you have 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has been chased around by Saul all around the wilderness. Some of you have heard this story, right? Saul like Chuck Spears at him and all this stuff. David and Goliath has already happened. All this is going on. And so finally, David is king. David is king. Israel and Judah have both come and made David their king. And he's going to have a little conversation with God. And he says in his heart that he desired to build a house for God. So he says, here I am, king, and the Lord's, the Lord's ark is in a tent. And David says, I'd like to build a house. And God comes and has this little conversation with him through a prophet where God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build your house. And I'm going to build your house so well that it will last for eternity and that One of your descendants will always rule on the throne of Israel. That's a pretty great conversation with God, right? I thought I was going to build him a house. He turns out he's going to build me an eternal house. Now, he's not talking about a palace for David. He's talking about the Davidic line, the Messiah. Basically, that's the Davidic covenant that God comes and says, David, my favor is on you forever. It will last. The Messiah will rule on the throne of Israel forever from your line." So that's 2 Samuel 7. David has victories in battle. God's giving him victories over his enemies. All this, all this is going great. But then in 2 Samuel eleven, it says, In the springtime when kings went off to war, what did David do? He didn't go. And he stayed on the rooftop of his house, and he ends up doing what? Commits adultery with this woman that he sees. And then he murders her husband. And then he covers it up. And then he tries to hide it and be silent. And from this point on, David's life is in upheaval. It, it, it's chaos. Not, not that the Lord's not designing it, but God comes and confronts him through the prophet and says, you've sinned. And there's going to be consequences of this. So the rest of David's life, uh, most of his sons rebel against him, try to take the throne from him. He gets kicked out of his own capital on mo- multiple times. And um, There's one point where a peasant is throwing rocks at him. And yet God brings him through all of that. And it's not easy, but God brings him through each time, each son that rebels, each rebellion that comes up from the kingdom, each time that something's going wrong. God is with David and God walks with David for the most part. God continues giving him victory over the Philistines, victory over the Ammonites, victory over all these people in the surrounding areas. And then David's coming to the end of his life and he brings in his commander and he tells him to go count the fighting men. Go count the fighting men. Why do that? So the commander says this. He says, David, why? The men of the Lord's, he's always provided enough people for us why should I go count throughout Israel how many fighting people we have? Basically what was going on was David's pride wanted to know how big his rule was. How big is my army? And the Lord the Lord was upset about it and the Lord gave a plague put a plague on the people of Israel because of it. And so as the and the Lord confronted David and said David this is going to happen there's going to be a plague but as the plague's coming it's so so bad and David is so broken hearted that it says he drops and he pleads, pleads that the Lord would take it away. And on that spot where he dropped and where the plague stopped, David said, this is where I'm going to build the temple. This is where the temple will go. And from that point on in David's elderly life, most of his life is spent preparing for the temple. Most of his life is spent gathering gold, wood, silver, craftsmen, stone, so that, not David, because David wouldn't build it, but he knew Solomon would build it. And so he prepares and prepares for the temple. So in my, in my mind, it's not a stretch to say that David would write a psalm of dedication for a temple that he didn't get to build. Right? Because he was the one, pre- he prepared, he prepared for it. And so again, whether this is David's house or the temple, David has been through all, this, all these upheavals in his life. And he's going to come and he's going to write this. And what we're going to see, the overall picture of the psalm is contrast, right? In verses one through three, you have help and trouble. In verses four and five, you have anger and favor. In verses six and seven, you have security and terror, right? In verses eight through 10, you have mercy and judgment. And in verse 11 and 12, you have joy and sorrow, you have joy and sorrow. But the major thing to see this morning is, that the negative one does not win. The trouble does not win. The anger does not win. The terror does not win. The judgment does not win. The sorrow does not win. Me as a pessimist, I'm always thinking they're going to (laughs) win. I'm always looking at it going, oh man, how bad is this? So I preach this to myself this morning. We want to see that our God is an overcoming God. That our God overcomes those things. It's in his nature to do so. So look down with me. The first situation in which God overcomes, I want to tell you this. verse. Look down at verse 1. The Lord gives help to overcome trouble. The Lord gives help to overcome trouble. Look down at verse 1. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and you did not let my enemies gloat over me. This is an amazing start. David says, I am resolved to exalt God. That word exalt means to put on high. Right. Some of us are always worried when someone drives up to our house of what do they think? What's the first thing they think when they see my house? Some of you, when you're getting dressed in the morning, this is the thing you're thinking about: is what's the first thing someone's going to someone's going to think when they see me? Are they going to think I look cool? Are they going to think I look dumb? Are they going to think I'm, uh, my colors match? I don't I don't know about that. Um, whatever it is, what are they going to think about me? And here's the idea about God being exalted: is that we want Him over our lives in such a way that when people look at our lives, that's the first thing they see. That's what it means to exalt the Lord. Is that in our lives, in our speech, our actions, our our stuff, in everything, we want Him over things so that people know that He's the one that's that's over us. That's what what it means to exalt the Lord. We want Him to be placed on high. Not that we place Him there, because really, He's already there. Right? (laughs) Right? Our stuff's not more important than God. I'm certainly not more important than God. Nothing I've accomplished. None of my money is more important than God. And so when I say exalt the Lord and he should be placed high in our lives, placed is a relative word, meaning he's already there. But we want people to recognize it, right? We want people to look at it. So this is what David's saying. I will exalt the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's given him help. Look at what it says in the middle of verse one. For you lifted me out of the depths... This is a word for drawing water out of a well. David is saying, I was in darkness. I was sinking. I was drowning. I was cold. I was wet. I could not climb out myself. And the Lord lifted me. The Lord helped me. So I want him to be exalted. He gives help to overcome trouble. Look at the next part. It says, you did not let my enemies gloat over me. Do you guys know the enemies of God are always looking for reasons to say that he's dead? Right? They want want people to think that God is inactive, that God does not exist, that God is nowhere to be found in the hardships of his people. The problem is, as a pessimist, and as someone who tends towards discouragement, sometimes I act this way. None None of you ever act that way, I know. It's just me. Right. But I tend this way. I tend to look and go, oh, God's not going to show up here. It's not going to happen. Oh, this situation is pretty bad. And my heart tends towards discouragement. My heart tends towards thinking that God is not going to show up, thinking that God is not nowhere to be found. And yet, David says, you did not allow my enemies to gloat over me. His enemies were looking to say, oh, David, see, you put your hope in the wrong God. Oh, David, that God that you talk about all the time, he's not doing so hot today, is he? David's enemies are looking to gloat, are looking to take joy in David's trouble. And yet David said, you didn't allow it, God. You didn't allow it. That same word for gloat, it's the same word in verse 11 for joy. God's people get the joy, the enemies get nothing. Right? The enemies get nothing. God's people get the joy, the enemies get nothing. God gives help. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do I do this? Why in my thinking do I allow my thoughts to go to the fact that I think God won't help me? Sometimes I even do this to other people, right? In my discouraging pessimism, I can point out reasons to other people. This is not how... The Lord overcomes. The Lord is a giver of help to his people. And some of you are like, well, Brandon, this is just the Old Testament, you know. Don't be one of those name it, claim it, gospel prosperity people. Look at verse two. Oh, Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. So some of you are like, oh, well, the Lord hasn't healed me. I got problems. I got stuff going on. Lord hasn't healed me. Stop. If you're a believer in this room, you have called to the Lord for help and he has healed you. He has. And I know, I tend to forget it myself. But I want to stop us in our thinking and go, wait a second. For us to look at verse 2 and say, oh, it doesn't apply to me. It just applies to David. Whoa, wait. If I'm a believer in Jesus, I'd cried out for help. And he did more than heal me. He made me a son. Made me an heir. Delivered me from my sins and death. This is who God is. This is not name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. What I want to point to today is who our God is and how that should affect our thinking. And the first thing we need to realize is that the Lord gives help. The Lord gives help. Look at verse 3. Oh Lord, you brought me up from the grave and you spared me from going down into the pit. Some people say that, this, that David must have been afflicted with something physically, right? That he's worried about going to the grave. The problem is in the Psalms, almost everything is referred to in physical terms eventually. And so it's hard to say what the trial was. It could have been physical. Maybe David is on his deathbed at some point and he's thinking about the temple to come and yet the Lord healed him and he's writing this. Or maybe it was the destruction of his kingdom he feared. Or maybe it was some trial in his family. I don't know. But all I do know is that he says the Lord brought him out of it. The Lord rescued him from it. It's who our God is. Um, It's not just the Old Testament. Jesus says this, right? He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Does that sound helpful? To me, it does. Paul says, uh, God does all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Does that sound helpful? In Hebrews, in case you, I'll read it for you. Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God's people are encouraged to come just as David did. And they're encouraged that God is the same God as he was to David. So I want to tell you first is that the Lord gives help. The Lord gives help. I'm going to talk more about the grave later in the psalm. So we'll we'll move on from that. Secondly, look down at verse four. Down at verse four. So we've seen that the Lord gives help. Secondly, we want to see that the Lord gives life to overcome his anger. Gives life to overcome his anger. Look down. Verse four. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his praise his holy name this is david saying everybody join the choir sing with me david just doesn't want the lord exalted in his own life he wants the lord exalted in everybody's life he's not the pessimist going around telling people you know you you shouldn't sing so loud yet trouble can still come we should be more reserved we shouldn't be so hopeful Right? David goes, sing with me, everybody, you his saints. The word saints literally means just those who have received the Lord's love, those who are the Lord's people. He says, sing with me. Rejoice. Have joy. Have joy. Those who, and it says, call in his holy name, right? Praise his holy name. Holy name is it's the idea of God's remembrance. When you remember my name, you probably don't remember anything spectacular, it's like when, I, when the name Brandon Kirby pops up, it's not like, oh, that guy did some stuff. With the Lord, that's different. <laughs> when we remember the Lord's name, we're talking uh, deliverance from the Red Sea. We're talking out of Egypt. We're talking the creation of the whole universe. We're talking everything. So God's calling his people to remember who he is. Look at verse five. Verse five is key to the psalm. It says this, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. I want to tell you in the Hebrew, it's a very hard thing to translate, which I which I don't like saying, but it literally says, in a moment, uh, for in a moment, his anger, life in his favor. Life in his favor. And so the translators go, well, by moment in life, is he meaning lifetime? Is he meaning duration? And it can mean that. And that's how the NIVs translated it, is, is a lifetime, his favor lasts a lifetime, But I want to tell you, I think the idea, that is part of the idea, but the idea is more than that. The idea is not just that his favor lasts for a lifetime, but more that his favor is life, period. It is eternal, long-lasting, never-ending life. And so here we have, the Lord gives life. The Lord gives life. Is he angry for a moment? Are there times in our life where the Lord's anger will bring discipline to us or where situations around us will cause us pain and harm? Yes, absolutely. But what are those moments? Moments. Yet the Lord gives what to his people? Life. Life. I'm always tempted to look and go and look at the anger part and make a big deal out of it and say, oh, situation so hard or I messed up so bad and now the Lord's angry with me and, and yet the Lord says that's a moment that's one moment but his favor for a lifetime his favor is life um, I want you to turn with me to 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 so Hebrews 12 tells us that obviously there's discipline right obviously there is a discipline that lasts in God's people to purify us, to sanctify us. We're going to come back to that idea later in the psalm. But I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. This is the only place I'll have you turn this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I'm going to read quite a bit of this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you, be recon- or, sorry we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Keep going. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for He says, "In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you." I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. If God's favor is dependent on me, that's bad. Right? If God's favor is dependent on me, measuring up all the time, bad. Who is his favor based on? Why is this the time of God's favor right now? Because of Jesus. You guys get that? Maybe you're in this room today and you just think God's angry with you. You, Maybe you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. And you just think, "Nah, I've done too many bad things. No, no, you don't understand. My life's pretty horrible. Or maybe just you're overwhelmed by your circumstances. You don't even want to come to God. I want to tell you, the time of his favor is now. That through Jesus, he is offering forgiveness to everyone who would come to him through Christ. He he's saying, My favor is available to you, not based on you, but based on the fact that my son died on the cross for your sins to reconcile me and you. God's got an open invitation. And so some of you you hear me talking about these things, and you you're not only are you pessimistic about circumstances, but you're pessimistic about God. I want to tell you, the Lord's favor can be sufficient for you today. Right? If you would come to him through Jesus, he will forgive all of your sins. He will wipe away the the guilt, the shame. He will give you eternal life. Um, it's today. Today is the time of God's favor. David knew that. David was a part of God's people. David, God had a covenant with David where David was, was one of his, and David knew that his favor with God would last, not because of David, but because of God. And so... Um, That's open. If you need to talk about that afterwards, come talk to me. God's forgiveness is available to everyone in this room today. And so if you need that, come talk. For the rest of us, this has to affect our view of hardship. Right? I cannot be a pessimist, even though I want to be. And my family trained me to be. And I'm good at it. Right? I can't. Because the Lord says his anger is only a moment. But there's life in his favor. And I have that life. And I need to focus on that. Flip back with me to Psalm 30, if you're not already back there. Um, So first, we've seen that the Lord gives help. Secondly, we have seen that the Lord gives life. And I want to show you this at the end of verse 5. Weeping may remain for a night. The idea is, but joy comes in the morning. The idea is, weeping is real. There are reasons to weep on this planet. There are troubles, hardships, pain, sin, death. But you know what that that term remains for a night is the idea of an overnight guest that gets kicked out in the morning. <laughs> Just remaining for a night. Just an overnight guest. Which one is the permanent one? The shout of joy. The shout of joy. This is where I struggle, right? My temptation is to view the weeping as the permanent and the joy as the temporary. That's my, maybe for some of you, you're like, man, you're morbid. I don't care. I I do fine all the time. Um, My temptation is to focus on the weeping and forget that the joy is the permanent one. The Lord gives help. The Lord gives life. Next, third, the Lord gives security. Look down at verse six. Look down at verse six. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Now, if I were to stand here before you all and say something like that, what would you think of me? If I stood here and said, I will never be shaken, what would you expect to happen in my life this week? (laughs) Shaking, right? You'd expect to hear that Brandon was shaking this week. The problem is this sounds as if David is overconfident. This sounds as if, and a lot of people take it that way. A lot of people automatically assume that David is being self-confident here. Not necessarily the case, because if we're with the Lord and his favor endures for a lifetime, we won't be shaken. We won't be shaken. But it depends on the attitude in our hearts, right? If David is being self-confident here, it's because in his heart, he's viewing himself as his security. Which is why you get to the end of verse eight and look what's happening. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Literally the word terror, terrified. Oh, I thought I was secure. And then all of a sudden it looks like God's face is turned and there's a hardship in life. And then I was terrified. Terrified. It's revealing David's heart. It's revealing that David was self-confident at times. David was putting his trust in himself. And if we're honest in this room, we are tempted to the same thing. We are tempted if even those of you who are really joyful and I go, I ask you this morning, hey, how's it going? I'm going, it's going great. For a lot of us, if we were honest, in parentheses after that should be as long as stuff keeps going okay. Close parentheses. I'm doing great. As long as this day continues going exactly how I want it to go. This is the beautiful thing with having a 13-month-old. My day never goes how I want it to go. Never. Never do we sleep when we want to sleep. Never do we eat when we want to eat. There's yelling. You can't do it. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful lesson in my life not being my own plan. But here's the deal. Um, we're all tempted to put our put our joy in that. We're, we're all tempted to find our security in the fact that we think our circumstances won't change and that they're going pretty good right now. And so it's great. It's great. That's not real security. In verse 7, David says, David says, Oh Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. His mountain, probably referring to his kingdom, probably referring to the general state of his, of the affairs, not so much of his personal life, but of his actual kingdom. And he's saying, the Lord did it, Right? When he was secure, why was he secure? Look down. Who was the one that did it? The Lord did. The Lord was the one that did it. Not David. David doesn't say my kingdom was secure because I was awesome. My kingdom was secure because everything just kept going like it was going. No, he was facing like a rebellion every other year. His kingdom was secure because the Lord made it secure. You guys get this is who our God is. So he gives help. He gives favor or life and he gives security. Our tendency is to find that security somewhere else. I have to keep moving. Um, If you're going to be, if you get terrified, say you have been putting your security in yourself and all of a sudden you find yourself in a place where you're terrified, what would be a good thing to do? Don't look at me like that. What would be a good thing to do? David does it next. Look, look, look what it says. What does David do? What? Prayed. Prayed. All right? Look at look down, look down at verse 8. To you, O Lord, I called; to the Lord I cried for mercy. So the Lord so far gives help, it's part of his nature. The Lord gives life, favor for a lifetime, eternal life basically you could say. The Lord gives security. Next, the Lord gives mercy. Any amens from that? No, I think I think so. Uh, look down, for I called to you, O Lord. I called to the Lord. I cried for mercy. This is the this idea of calling out here for mercy is not like the idea of just saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me." This is the idea of like begging, pleading mercy. This is like this is like the crying, the ugly cry, the I really need you. Um, I need help. I cannot do this. I don't deserve this on my own. I haven't earned this. I'm simply crying out for mercy. And you know what? Mercy overcomes judgment, right? You know that also from the book of James. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Lord's mercy will triumph over His judgment. Look what look what's happening. Verse eight. To you, o Lord, I called. To you, I cried for mercy. What it, what gain is there in my destruction? In my going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you and will it proclaim your faithfulness? This is kind of a weird argument to us. We're like, Jesus, don't let me die because I want to sing some more. Um, basically, what David is saying is that my life, God, is for praising you. And if I'm destroyed, if I go down to the pit, if I go down to the grave, there won't be any praise coming from my mouth for people to hear. Now, we know as believers, our praise will continue on into eternity, but not in front of unbelievers on this planet, it won't. Basically, Sheol, the grave, the pit, destruction, all these words, all these synonyms David is using, he's not thinking about a theology of heaven and hell. He's thinking about theology on this planet. Um, is there much praise of God coming from uh, tombs? You don't go to a cemetery and put your ear to the grass and expect to hear singing coming back at you. Some of you are like, that's kind of more. But here's the idea. David says, God, you're not praised like that. Unbelievers can't go to a cemetery and hear the song of God's people. Unbelievers won't walk into a tomb and hear the song of God's people. They'll hear it while we're alive. And some of us are so pessimistic that it's like we're waiting for heaven. Well, I would praise the Lord, but life's pretty bad on this earth, so I'm going to wait for heaven. Do we say that? No. But some of us with our attitudes, that's what we're doing. <laughs> I see it sometimes. We, so I'm up here on stage, right? I get to look out on all of you. Sometimes on Sunday morning, I see the face of, well, not today. Not today. What? Why? The Lord gives mercy today. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, said, We ask a right for life when we do so that we may live to praise him. We ask a right for life when we do so that we would live to praise the Lord. That's what David's doing here. David's saying, God, my life is to exalt you. Remember from verse 1? And I know that you are merciful, and so I'm calling out to you. Does the Lord give mercy? Absolutely. Look at verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. We know that the Lord gave him mercy. He's already told us that in verses 1, 2, and 3 of the psalm. So, so far, we've seen that the Lord gives help, favor, security, and mercy to his people. Help, favor, security, and mercy to his people. I'm so glad that mercy triumphs judgment, right? so glad that I can call out when I don't deserve it, and yet the Lord is merciful. Last but not least, I believe David sums it all up. Look down at verse 11. David sums it all up and says this, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. The Lord gives help, favor, security, mercy, and joy. This is why my pessimism cannot rule my life. <laughs> this is why I cannot just focus on the negative and act like that's okay. Because the Lord gives joy that will overcome sorrow. Look at what he says. Verse, verse 11, you turned my wailing. That word for turn is better, could be better translated overturned. It's the same idea of when Jesus turns over the tables in the temple. It's not just God saying, okay, let's turn around. It's God saying out of here, out of here, shoving it out. God has overturned my wailing. God can push it over and grant me hope when I tend to focus on the negative things. I've been walking through this week, all week, and I'll find myself being negative. And there's nothing even bad going on in my life right now. Imagine if there was, how depressed I could be, right? There's nothing even bad going on in my life, but still I find myself walking around. I focus on the negative and I found myself stopping and saying, wait, Brandon, you have every reason for overcoming joy right now. You have every reason for having an overcoming joy in the Lord right now. But you're being negative, but you're being sad, but you're being discouraged. He's overturned my wailing and he's turned it into dancing. Now, my generation has no idea how to dance for the most part. At, the, at a wedding, I can kind of go like this, right? This, this is how we dance. This is all we do. That is not the kind of dancing this is talking about. It is not talking about awkward wedding dancing or whatever. Some people really do not dance, but most people don't. Um, if you if you got a phone call and you won, or maybe if you won the lottery. No, we don't do the lottery here. Um, if you if you got a phone call and you received inheritance, right? You received inheritance, million dollars. You got that news? You hang up the phone and there's no one around. What happens? <laughs> the happy dance, right? The happy dance comes out. That's the kind of dancing we're talking about. It's not the kind of dancing where it's like awkward or I don't know what I'm doing or a slow dance. We're talking the million dollar news on the phone. No one's around dancing for joy, kind of dancing. The Lord has overturned my wailing and turned it into dancing. The Lord has removed my sackcloth, which again, who's the the one doing all these things, by the way? The Lord is. The Lord has removed my sackcloth, which is like a funeral garb. An equivalent today would be like all black. People like the funeral dress, veil, all black. The Lord has removed that. And he has clothed me with joy. What a figure of speech, right? What a way to express, clothed me with joy all around me. My clothing is all around me most of the time, hopefully. right? My clothing follows me around, again, hopefully. And yet this is the picture he's using for joy. This is the way the Lord can clothe us with joy, is is all the time, all around us, all the time, walking through life. He's clothed me with joy. Why has he done this? So that I can have a happy life? No. Verse 12. That my heart may sing to you and not be silent. David says, I want my lips to work. I want my lips to not be dumb, not be silent, not be still. I want my lips to praise you, God. And the reason why you give help and favor and security and mercy and joy the reason why you're the kind of God who does that is because you're the God who's praiseworthy. Because you want your people to praise you. It's incredible. And he it closes up with, Oh Lord, my God. Again, he's resolved to say, I will give you thanks forever. I will. The Lord has saved us to praise him. It's one of the reasons, at least. So, I'm a pessimist. I've told you that. I tend to focus on the negative. Not only that, I can be a perfectionist where... I measure everything according to some perfect ideal standard out there that doesn't actually exist. That can make my life discouraging if I let it. But I don't have to. Some of you are like, well, if I'm here and I'm sad today, does this mean I just pray and the Lord overturns my overturns my uh, wailing into joy? Um, yes, it can mean that. But it also means that in my thinking, I need to think about God properly. So that I will praise him rightly. And that as we walk through our day as a church, as we walk through life as a church together, the pessimist cannot rule the day. <laughs> if I'm being a pessimist, take me out. <laughs> take me out and say, Is are you the enemy of the Lord? Is the Lord inactive? Is the Lord unable to overturn wailing into into rejoicing? And so I challenge us today to consider who our God is, who he was to David and who he is to us and to praise him for that. And when I say overcoming joy, I do not mean it as a job description. (laughs) I mean it as a gift that we have from the Lord. Y'all bow your heads and pray with me. God, we look to you this day. Thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for David, the experiences that he went through, the things that you had him write down about you, that we could read them thousands of years later. God, you grant joy to your people, a joy that overcomes. You give help. You give favor. You give security. You give mercy. So God, help us to remember that. And Lord, for me and people that struggle like me who tend towards discouragement, who tend towards looking on the negative too long, looking as if it's permanent, God, remind us of who you are and what you give us. God, we love you. Pray your blessing on this day. I pray that we would rejoice and praise you as we should. We love you. Help us to love you more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.